Hi, I'm Sue. Hi, Sue. Grateful member of the Al-Anon family group. Thank you for asking me to do the steps. It's a Friday night. God, I want to step study in Fullerton, California. And uh, tonight we are on the eighth step. And uh, made a list of all people we had harmed and became willing to make amends to them all. I worked on this all day long by going Christmas shopping. I was willing. My daughter, our daughter and our granddaughter got in last night. And uh, part of my amends to my daughter is to uh, be loving and kind and gentle to my granddaughter and to her. And for her father and I to not fight and end up falling down on the Christmas tree or throwing ornaments at each other and all of the above. And I was willing to not do any of that today. And uh, that's what this list is all about. A lot of people have a lot of problems with this step because they think that, um, you know, this is all about step nine. It's not. It's when you do your fourth step part of... uh, like when you do your sixth step, you just list all of your character defects, your seven steps going over that with your sponsor and uh, looking at your assets or the opposite of the seven deadly sins of what you should be doing to change. You give all the defects to God and you work on the opposite side so you can start changing. So on the eighth step, all you're doing is making a list. You're willing to make a list. And uh, I've heard people say, you know, the first people you list, the ones that you're really willing to make amends to, and then you list the people that, uh, you know, maybe I'll make amends to, and then you continue with people you don't want to make amends to at all. I don't believe that. I believe that you make the list, period. And it's all about the willingness, because at this point in our progress, You know, we have developed a relationship with a power greater than ourselves, and this step is being willing to clean up the wreckage of the past. We cannot make this list without going back over our inventories. So uh, in the 12 and 12s, both the AA and the Al-Anon 12 and 12s talk about going back and reviewing everyone that was on your resentment list. And I was told that everybody on my resentment list are all the names that belonged on my eight-step list, my men's list. And you do not make those amends then. You're just willing to make those amends. And that's what this step's all about. You become willing to do that. So in the uh, AA 12 and 12... It says, every AA has found that he can make little headway in this new adventure by living until he first backtracks and really makes an accurate and unsparing survey of the human damage he has left in his wake. And I do not believe that we, the only difference between an alcoholic and an Al-Anon is the obsession. And uh, the alcoholic's obsession is with booze and ours is with the boozer. Once uh, they stopped drinking, I believe that we're all the same. We all had the same character defects, the same emotions. I think alcoholics are a lot more sensitive than we are. Uh, 
but we martyr and whine more. So we have to redouble our efforts to see how many people we have hurt. And that's why it's very important to not give up your uh, four-step inventory, destroy it until you are through with the eighth step. Because we go back, we backtrack, and we review that. The eighth step in the AA 12 and step 12 and 12 in the very beginning, it says steps eight and nine are concerned with personal relationships. And there's three parts to it. First, we take a look backwards and try to discover where we have been at fault. And we found that out in the fourth column of our fourth step. Next, we make a vigorous attempt to repair the damage we have done because there cannot be any resentments unless we have participated. There are resentments. So we have to look at what part we've done in each one of those resentments. And third, having thus cleaned away the debris of the past, we consider how, with our newfound knowledge of ourselves, we may develop the best possible relations with every human being we know. And as far as I'm concerned, that means leaving no one out. Every human being we know. It is so easy for people to skip over some of these words and interpret these steps the way they see fit. So we cannot leave anyone off of our amends list because this is about the willingness to clean our side of the street up. It has nothing to do with anybody else. It doesn't matter if someone else, we think someone else hurt us. In the Al-Anon 12 and 12, it talks about uh, people that talked about us, gossip about us, did things to hurt us, and we retaliated. It doesn't matter what other people did to us. Like now, we're in the program, and we do not let others have the power to hurt us anymore. I remember when I was doing the program and I would say, he made me feel bad. And my sponsor said, he cannot do that unless you let him. And so at this point in our program, we have the power to not let those things hurt us anymore. It's like we can just let them go. Because like we talked about last week, just because he says it doesn't make it so. Nobody can tell me how I feel anymore. Nobody can have control over my feelings unless I give them control. And so what we're doing is looking back over our inventories, and what we see is how we gave these people power over our lives and how we retaliated, um, took revenge, thought about how to get even, all of that kind of stuff. And so those people... We were unfair, unkind, deceitful, selfish, and hurtful. Those are the five questions we need to ask ourselves about each person on that list. It's on page 49 in the Al-Anon 12 and 12, down at the last paragraph. And it tells you exactly what there were questions to ask ourselves. What did we do that hurt someone? Why did we do it? What were the consequences? Did it do permanent damage? 
Were we thinking of single instances in which we were unfair, unkind, deceitful, selfish, and harmful? Or could it be that we were putting too much weight on something the other person wasn't even disturbed by? And one of the problems of make it, taking the ninth step before you do this eighth step is that uh, after I got in the program, I had worked early on after we moved to California with a lady, and she was my supervisor, and she was uh, a very neat lady. I was like in my mid to late 20s. And uh, she tried... She told me later after she had hired me that when I walked in there, coming in from Texas, and that was in 67, I had, uh, my hair was bleached, but it was a um, ash blonde. Well, I had so much ash on my blonde, it looked gray. I had a skirt on uh, that went below my knees, and I had um, the suit jacket buckled up to my collar, my neck. And uh, the manager, after he did the interview, um, and I was involved in sales, inside sales, and from time to time I was going to have to meet customers. And he said, I like everything about her, but her appearance. He said, I know she's in her 20s, but she looks 50. And this lady's name was Cecilia, and she said, don't worry about it, I'll take care of that part of it. And what this lady did for me is on our lunch hours, she'd say, I was going to go shopping on my lunch hour, you want to run with me? And so we would go to a department store, and she would pick out clothes, she'd hold up clothes, and she'd say, oh, Sue, this would look so cute on you. You know, or we'd see somebody with a real pretty hairdo, and she'd go, you ought to try that hairdo. I think it'd look cute on you. And she literally groomed me to become a professional-looking person instead of a country bumpkin. And uh, she really cleaned me up. And uh, some of the other girls in the office did not like her, and we gossiped about her a lot. I was involved in that gossip. Even though she was helping me, I wanted to be part of the office personnel, the other girls in the office, and so I got, I would get involved with the gossip in that office regarding Cecilia. So when I got to this program, I decided one day, uh, I kept in touch with her, and I was working for another company, and I, she'd, uh, She'd call me every once in a while and ask me how I was doing, and, and we'd talk. And uh, one day I asked her if she wanted to go to lunch with me. I'd meet her for lunch, and so we went to lunch. And uh, I told her about all the stuff people in the office said about her, and that me included, and that I wanted to make amends to her for all the ugly things that I'd participated in. And that lady started crying. And uh, she said, oh, my gosh, I didn't know you ever felt that way. And I said, I didn't feel that way, but I participated in it. And a lot of it was just jokes. Well, to hear those jokes coming from her side, they were very cruel. And uh, that hurt her more. I mean, she was a seamstress, and she even made me some uh, special things 
after Keith and I got in the program, we went on a sober sailor's cruise, and she made me this special dress uh, to wear for dinner on the sober sailor's cruise, on the ship cruise. And, uh, and it was a gift from her. And she did stuff like that for me all the time, and she was so hurt by that. And my sponsor really got on my case and said, we were only doing your eighth step. You know, you work on your ninth step when we get to your ninth step, or after we go over your eighth step. You don't go around and harm people prior to doing this list. So I was really premature. I also did it to my mother. I wrote my mother a letter, and uh, I told her... Uh, I resented her always telling me to write to her because I used to call my mother all the time and uh, and I'd dump on my mother. Or I'd tell her that uh, I was committing suicide and where Simone was at at the neighbor's so she could go pick her up and that kind of stuff. Keith would be in jail. And so I called her all the time to tell her that kind of stuff. And she would always say when we'd hang up and I'd say, okay, everything's okay now. You know, like one time I called her up and said, uh, you know, I've got all the gas on in the house and Simone's down at the neighbor's and I gave her the neighbor's name and phone number and he's in jail and I do not want him to get Simone. And uh, she kept me on the phone. And after I talked to her for a couple hours, I go just a second. And she was waiting for my brother to come home so she could have my brother call the police and have him come over and get me. And uh, I told her after a couple hours, I said, uh, just a second. She goes, no, no, don't hang up. Please don't hang up. And I said, no, I'll be right back to the phone. I've got to turn the gas off. I'm getting dizzy. And she said, if I was there right now, I'd kill you myself, you know. And I used to do stuff like that to her all the time. <coughs> and, uh, and then when we'd hang up, she'd say, write me. Write me every week. And tell me how things are and don't wait so long, you know, to let me hear from you. And when I hear from you, you wait. And when I hear from you, it's all bad stuff and, and you worry me sick. Um, so I uh, wrote her a letter and I said, uh, I like to make phone calls and you like to write. So if you want to write to me, you write. But I will not ever write to you. That's not my nature. And I will call you um, on the even months, and you can call me on the odd months. But you're not going to tell me what to do anymore and have control over my life. So if you want to keep communication with me, you're going to have to call me too, and you're going to have to write me. But you have the odd months because you're weird, and I have the even months. And... Uh, and then I went on. I told her a whole bunch of other stuff about what I did and why I did it to her and the things that she had done that I didn't like. And uh, I did this to you because you'd done this and blah, blah. And I got a note back from her. She had just sent me one of those little uh, thinking of you cards and said, I got your letter and I don't know what to do with it. And so I called my sponsor and told her about it. Boy, did my sponsor get on my case. 
She said, this is the second time you've gone into the ninth step before you've done the eighth step. Don't ever do that again. I sponsored a lady one time that had had a child. Um, she had never told the father of that child that she was pregnant and had that child. And she called him up one day, or she wrote him a letter and said, you have a two-year-old little girl. What this girl needed that was in Al-Anon, she needed insurance coverage on this little girl. She said, your little girl's very sick. You know, I had um, this child, and, and she needs help, medical help, medical assistance. And she said, um, and you're the father, and so you need to do something about this. And the guy said, oh, my gosh. He said, I'm married now. My wife doesn't know anything about this. I didn't know I had a child out there anywhere. He said, this could destroy my whole life. And he said, let me talk to my wife, and I'll get back to you. And she waited a couple of days, and she was bragging about it because she thought she really had him over a barrel. And it was so cool what he did. He called her back, and he said, you know, I talked to my wife about it. And my wife and I haven't been able to have children, so we want to adopt that little girl. And it freaked this gal out. And she said, well, I'm done with him. I'm not going to have any battles in court and blah, 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 you know. Um, and so she just turned him off. But it's like uh, you make this list, and we do not take actions on this list until we have gone over it with a sponsor. And it talks about that in our literature. Uh, taking this step, just the effort of taking this step, writing those names down, knowing that I was going to have to make amends, relieved a lot of the guilt. A lot of the guilt. I had so much guilt over how I had treated my daughter. And uh, I didn't know how I was ever, ever going to be able to clean that up. But just writing her name down on that list relieved some of that. Because I knew that whatever my sponsor and I talked about was a solution to those amends was going to be okay because I had the willingness to do it. One area which most of us find ample opportunity to put this step into practice was in our family relationships. Here again, love and concern for husband or wife and children did not always assure our being good to them. Overprotection might have deprived them of opportunities for growth. <coughs> the trials and stresses of living with an alcoholic certainly may have distorted our perceptive perceptions. Now, I know that a lot of the harm that I did my daughter was because of the resentments that I had toward the alcoholic, most of it. I resented her a lot because she demanded things from me, like me being a responsible parent. And uh, I would put her off. Um, I would not teach her things because it was too much trouble. Uh, I never, ever bothered to teach my daughter how to cook because it was too much trouble. And she would make too big a mess. It was just easier for me to do it myself. When she um, and her husband got together, she, he, she asked him, he said something about it. he wanted a, 
a hard-boiled egg. She goes, how do you do that? And he couldn't believe she didn't know how to make hard-boiled eggs. Now, she never wanted to know how to make hard-boiled eggs because I would give her hard-boiled eggs every morning. And she was supposed to eat it on the way to school because if she did that, I was a good mother. And she hated hard-boiled eggs. I never asked her if she liked them or not. I gave them to her. And she would hide them in her coat pockets, and the pockets in her coats got holes in it, but it was closed in the lining. And those eggs would roll around, she'd sit on them, and they'd spoil. And she smelled horrible when she got to this program. So eggs weren't at the top of her priority list of how to learn how to fix them. But her husband thought it was weird that she didn't even know how to boil, make hard-boiled eggs. He said, you put it in boiling water. She said, how do you make the water boil? I mean, she was in her early 20s. And she knew nothing about cooking at all. Now, the weird part about that is that her husband is in the restaurant business. He knows everything about cooking. And, uh, you know, he has taught her so much about cooking. And uh, she even went to uh, cooking classes to learn how to cook after she was married. Because she didn't have a clue. So when it says, overprotection may deprive them of opportunities for growth, overprotection of what? Overprotection of standing on their own two feet, letting them be responsible for themselves, you know, trying to do things that other kids just naturally do, like learning how to dress themselves, pick their clothes out, do their laundry, you know, all of that kind of stuff that parents teach them, deprive my daughter of opportunities for growth. It also, her not being able to bring uh, friends home after school, because she didn't know if her father was going to be drunk or if I was going to be on a tangent because he wasn't home. It deprived her of social skills. Everything that my daughter is today is because of the program of Alateen. Alateen and sponsorship taught my daughter more. Now, there were some principles in our house that we lived by, you know, um, she knew to not butt in when adults were talking. Uh, children are to be seen and not heard. And as she got older in her life, that became an asset, and it was called manners. And uh, she was taught to say, yes, ma'am, yes, sir, no, ma'am, no, sir, because we were from Texas, and everybody says that there. She was taught to say, to ask, can I please have an apple? Thank you very much. She was taught those kind of things. The neat part is, is that uh, she's passing that on to her daughter. It was so cool this morning when I woke up. Our granddaughter slept with us last night. And uh, that was a big deal. And at 7 o'clock this morning, I heard this little voice in my ear, Granny, (laughs) Granny. And I go, what? 
She goes, bacon. <laughs> I said, you bet. And I didn't teach her how to make it. I got up and I made it. <laughs> and it was so cool today when my daughter and I uh, were in the car by ourselves together. Um, Chris kept Nicole this afternoon so Simone and I could go shopping for her by ourselves. So she'll have some surprises. And we gotten her this little doll. She wants a little doll that you can give it a bottle of water and it pees. And, and it's got diapers that you put on it and change. And you can even feed this thing food. <laughs> and you can put it in the bathtub, you know. And so we found this doll for her that does all of that. And Simone said... Uh, you know, if we give her this doll now, that when she's taking a bath while you and I are getting ready, she'll be playing with this doll and washing her and taking care of her and stuff, you know, and you and I can get ready and she's occupied and then we take her out of the tub and we can dress her when we're through dressing. And she said, or we can wait until Christmas. You know, and I said, it doesn't matter to me, you know, whichever one you want to do. And she said, Fabio's my daughter's husband's name, and she said, him and I have had arguments about he spoils her too much. Is she something that he wants her to have or he likes or that she says she wants, and he gets it for for no reason at all. And I said, you know, your dad and I used to have fights like that about you, Simone. I said, because I came from a very poor family that uh, you didn't get anything unless it was your birthday or Christmas. And Keith would get some own things. He came from a higher class family. It was better off. And if she wanted a bicycle in the middle of summer, she got a new bicycle for no reason at all. And him and I used to have those kind of fights. And I said, so maybe that's where you got that, Simone, because you were never really deprived. And she said, yeah, but there's standards to live by. And she said, so... Uh, do you want to go by that standard now that we keep this doll and have it under the tree and she gets it when we open our Christmas presents? And I said, not really. <laughs> and she said, uh, wait a minute, what happened to all your principles? I said, look, when I was a mother, there were rules. But when you become a grandma, there are none. The rules are up to you. I don't have to live by rules with my granddaughter. Anything goes. <laughs> and guess what? We walked in the door and Simone handed the sack to Keith and she goes, Dad, give this to Nicole so she thinks that we all, that it's from all of us and she can go ahead and play with it now. And so we did. And she's home playing with it right now and she's tickled to death. And it was so funny to watch Nicole, five years old, her parental instincts coming out. And then she tried to do that with our cat, and didn't work so well. <laughs> Poor cat, we'll have him on tranquilizers before she leaves. At, um, in fact, we already did. <laughs> At, um, he'd rather get in the box than get in baby clothes. So... <laughs> So anyway, he's he's having a hard time, so we'll put him on our eight-step list um, before Christmas gets here. 
But anyway, those are the kind of things, opportunities that we do with our own children. They can't spill anything. In an alcoholic home, a child absolutely cannot spill anything. That is, that's not heard of. You pay a big price for that. You pay a big price for not cleaning up your room. Yeah. So those are the things. Um, being overprotective, we can literally, literally, emotionally, and socially retard our children with the disease of alcoholism by being overprotective and uh, keeping them juvenile. We used to have one, a lady come to our meetings, and she would have to leave as soon as the meeting's over. She goes, i got to go fix dinner for my little boy. And she'd run out every meeting. i got to hurry home because he didn't get home till late. i got to pick him up, and uh, i got to fix dinner for my little boy. And one day somebody says, how old is your little boy? And she goes, 42. 42 years old, drunk living with mommy. The neatest thing that we did for our daughter is that we allowed her, and it wasn't easy. Uh, after she got out of high school, she went to the Orient to model, and she came home and worked for two years, saved her money, and moved to Italy when she was 20, 21 years old. And we didn't know if we'd ever see her again. We didn't hear from her for six weeks when she first went over there. And it's a long story, but she reached out to Alcoholics Anonymous and everything turned out okay for her. A man over there, um, NAA, was from L.A. and knew us. And he helped her go around to the agencies and find an apartment where the model stayed. And then he came home and, and told us she was okay. At, um, I found out two things during that period of time. And every mother in here needs to hear it. God has no grandkids. She is not mine. I'd taken possession of that child just like I did the alcoholic. And I'd retarded her socially, mentally, and spiritually. And uh, the other thing that I found out is that there is no spot where God is not. God lives in Italy, too. You know, God has no boundaries. I am the only one that has boundaries. So if we have the willingness to start to make this list, the great adventure of doing this will so quickly reveal themselves that the pain will be lessened as one obstacle after another melts away. Because you see, in the seventh step, we're changing. That's when we actually start the physical change, the mental and the emotional change. Because we're going to do exactly the opposite of what the disease of alcoholism is telling us in our heads to do. And so we've already started this change. And so all of these, the pain and the burdens are lessening because we are becoming willing to make these amends. And however they need to be done. And I truly believe that however they need to be done need to be talked, um, discussed with a sponsor. 
and we'll go over all of that kind of stuff in the ninth step. It's really hard to uh, cover the eighth step and not talk about the ninth step. In this step, we are becoming willing to learn how to love without demanding conformity from others. What the people that go on this list, we absolutely can have no expectations of them anymore, ever, at all. This is all about us. This step is totally about me and what actions I need to take. If we haven't the will to do this, we ask until it comes. That's out of the big book of AA, and it's talking about prayer and sponsorship. Remember, it was agreed at the beginning. When we came in this program and we said, help me, we became willing that and said that we would do whatever it takes. We would go to any lengths for victory over alcoholism. And that's what we're doing at this point. We're going to any lengths. So we can't question that anymore. We have to look at what part we played because we have caused so many problems. Now there were so many times that I thought that I did the right thing for Keith and Simone. Especially them. And for people at work, you know, and it goes on and on and multiplies. But what I got to find out when I looked at this step after doing my inventory, I owed all of those people amends. I had to put them on this list because in the fourth column, I found out that all of that good intentions were just self-seeking motives. So in each person, when we go back and we ask those questions... On uh, why we did it, why did we, what did we do that hurt someone? Why did we do it? What were the consequences? Did it do permanent damage? So we need to go back and look at what our motives were when we were doing whatever it was we were doing. It's like I would make my daughter dress up and look good, and I would say, "You will not." And Simone was a tomboy. And I would put dresses and tights on her. And I would say, you will not come home today with holes in your knees. And she did. She did all the time. And I would get on her and then I'd make her wear something really tacky and ugly and only boys act like that. Well, it's not true. I was a tomboy when I was young. And Simone had tomboy characteristics too. But it was unacceptable for her to run and fall down and tear her tights. She had to look good at all costs because I thought she was a reflection on me. Self-seeking, selfishness, self-centeredness. I would pick out things when my husband and I went out together or to parties because I wanted him to look good. Now, you guys have seen him when he has on camouflage pants and a Hawaiian shirt. I don't pick his clothes out for him anymore. He likes those kind of things, and he also likes them together. 
And I look at him when he does that, and I just laugh. You know, because nobody's going to come up to me and say, why did you let him dress like that? He's a grown man. He can wear whatever he wants. And the longer he's been sober, the more he cares about his appearance. And so I haven't had to tell him anything. I, we used to have fights, not them drag out fights about his hair. I hated long hair on men. I would say, my hair is the only hair that will be on that pillow. Or if you have long hair, you look like a faggot. <laughs> and a lot of other things that were uglier. And long beard. Hated all of that. But when he got sober, Alcoholics Anonymous took care of that. He started being asking to share in Alcoholics Anonymous. And Alcoholics Anonymous and Al-Anon have rules that they are not written anywhere. You will not ever find them in black and white. But it is a traditional thing in these programs because the long-timers set the pace years and years ago that when you get behind a podium, you will look attractive so that if the newcomer doesn't hear anything you say, they will see the look. And they will see recovery. And so we look our best when we go to meetings. There are ways to dress casual to meetings. You know, you can, my first sponsor used to say, I wish that when people came into the first meeting, we could take snapshots. And then after they have one year, take another picture of them and let them see the difference. And they used to say, AAs would say, when I was new, you can really tell the AA women from the al women because the al women are really dowdy. I go, uh-uh. Not this chick. And I would dress up when I went around those AA women because I wanted them to know that I was as worth as much as they were that I had as much self-worth as they did, and I cared about myself. And, I'll, and I did it with smug and arrogance in the very beginning, lots of smug and arrogance. And I remember one time Keith and I were going to a speaker meeting, and I had on this gorgeous rust pantsuit with bell-bottom legs, and I had on a melon-colored silk blouse with it and these boots, and uh, I was going to show those AA women that I was as cool as them. And I was looking good going in those AA meetings. It was raining outside. And we got the meeting, we walked in, and I'll never forget this long-timer AA lady by the name of Mary Regan. I learned to love her so much, and her and I were really close later on. She walked up to Keith, and she gave him a hug and kissed him. And then she gave me a hug, and she goes, Oh, honey, you must have stepped in a puddle. And I looked down, and my pants leg was totally wet, clear up to my knee. And I thought to myself, Well, enough of being cool. Because when I'm trying to be something, I always pay the price. I, I'm a goofus. I'm a goofus. Uh, 
One year, it, uh, a couple of years ago, on the 4th of July, I was shopping for, I wanted to dress red, white, and blue, and I'd found a navy uh, shell sweater, navy blue, with the, the flag on the front, and so I wanted red pants with blue and, and white in them. So I found these pants. They were red, and they had little bitty white and blue stars in them. They were so cute. But they were pajama bottoms. <laughs> but nobody knew that. They didn't even look like pajama bottoms. And so I wore them to the 4th of July dance here at the hall. And everybody told me how cute I looked. And I told some of the girls, they're pajama bottoms. And they go, you can't really tell. They're so cute. And uh, I said, yeah, I liked them too. So Keith and I go off to a convention and we get to the airport, and this couple comes to pick us up, and the guy said he'd go get the car if we'd just wait there at the curb. And, and so this guy's wife smoked, and, and so do I. And so we were standing outside with Keith and the bags and his wife and I, and I pulled out my Virginia Slim cigarettes and started to light it up. And this lady said, are those capris? And I said, no, they're really pajamas, but aren't they cute? <laughs> And she goes, what? <laughs> she said, I was talking about your cigarettes. <laughs> so with regard to the eight step, my name belonged on there too because I had so many expectations of who I'm not and that any time I try to be somebody I'm not to impress somebody else, I always look like a goofus, you know. But the good news is today I can laugh at myself. Today I can have fun with it and I can laugh at myself. And I don't have to pretend that I'm anybody I'm not. This is me. What you see is what you get. And I enjoy who I am today because I was willing to also put my name on this list. Because, you see, the willingness to put my name on this eight-step list did away with all expectations of what I had for anybody on that list. Keith, Simone, co-workers, parents, myself, God, we're all on that list. Friends, past friends, current friends. I even, when I... Uh, made this list, I had a couple of Al-Anons on my list that I owed amends to, I thought. So I was willing to do all of that, and when I wrote those names down, I knew that I had to get honest. I had to be willing to be honest. I had to be willing to be who I am. I had to be willing to clean up the wreckage of the past and start treating other people like they deserve to be treated, not like I thought they needed to be treated, not to retaliate because what they had done to me. Yeah. So um, there's a lot more in this step than just saying, okay, I'm willing to say I'm sorry. This step gets rid of blaming others. No one else in my life at this point is to blame. In fact, I believe that happens with the first step. If you come in here and you're willing 
to admit that you're powerless over alcohol, that your life is unmanageable, and you still go around blaming others, you haven't taken the first step. Well, it absolutely is so in this step. Because we're cleaning up our side of the street. We're willing to look at us. And it is impossible to do that without going back over your four-step inventory. We could not let ourselves take refuge in excuses. I did this, but this is what she did to me. Cannot do that. Even my mother, with the resentments I had toward my mother, when I finally made amends to my mother, I had to be willing to have her name on this list, and I had to be willing to make direct amends to her which next week I'll probably share that with you. At, um, this is the key that gets rid of all of these should I, shouldn't I. Because if you go around and say, should I do this, should I not do this, should I, should I not, you're going to end up shouldn't all over yourself. And it's going to smell like should too. <laughs> because it's a stinking attitude. It says, we might have imagined that a wrong we did was due to some character flaw in us, but this wasn't always true. Much damage can be done by those richly endowed with kindness, love, sympathy, and tolerance. Many a person with all those beautiful qualities and with the best of intentions has wrecked havoc in the lives of others in themselves. And it's like I was talking about a while ago. What are my motives? So I can't cover up anymore with false impressions, false truths. I have to face reality face on. On page 51, the Alan on 12 and 12, it says, Moreover, if we have set a poor example for our children, we need not be surprised if, on other occasions, they have behaved badly. What kind of example are we in the home? This is a clean slate step. We're becoming willing to clean the state, clean up our side of the street, and move on. When listing the people we have harmed, most of us hit another solid obstacle. We got a pretty severe shock when we realized that we were preparing to make a face-to-face admission of our wretched conduct to those we had hurt. It had been embarrassing enough when in confidence we admitted these things to our God, to ourselves, and to another human being. One more time, this step is inducing humility in my life. There is no progress in this program without humility. There were cases, too, where we had damaged others who we're still happily unaware of being hurt. And that's like I said uh, before about that lady that I worked with. Why we cried. Why we cried. Shouldn't bygones be bygones? 
Why do we have to think of these people at all? These were some of the ways in which fear conspired with pride to hide our making a list of all the people we had harmed. And that comes out of the AA 12 and 12, and all is italicized in the AA 12 and 12. So we cannot let our pride and fear overwhelm us at this point because the only action we're taking at this point is making that list. And I just can't keep emphasizing that enough. We need to search in making this list when we take this list to our sponsor to be willing to search our motives and our actions of why the people's names are even on there. Do I want to go kiss up to somebody? And make them really like me? It really doesn't matter what their point of view is. It has nothing to do with what anybody thinks about me. I have to be willing to put their name on there. No matter what I've done. No matter how much they participated in my wrongdoing. It doesn't matter. And I think that uh, I really believe that our names, our own names, go on this list. We might next ask ourselves what we mean when we say that we have harmed other people. What kinds of harm do people do one another anyway? To define the word harm in a practical way, we might call it the result of instincts in collision which cause physical, mental, emotional, and spiritual damage to people. If our tempers are consistently bad, we arouse anger in others. If we lie or cheat, we deprive others not only of their worldly goods, but of their emotional security and peace of mind. Think about that. How many times have we robbed people in our lives of a peace of mind because they don't know what we're going to do next? I think that is very heavy in the home. Whether it's with the alcoholic or with our children, we really issue them an invitation to become contemptuous and vengeful. Then we look at our sex inventory. If our sex conduct is selfish, we may excite jealousy, misery, and strong desires to retaliate in kind. Such gross misbehavior is not by any means a full catalog of the harms we do. Let us think of some of the subtler ones, which can sometimes be quite as damaging. Suppose in our family lives we helped to be miserably irresponsible, calloused, or cold. How many times do you tell the people that you live with in your home that you love them before you got this program? That can damage kids really bad. It could damage the alcoholic in my life. It's one of the things that helped heal. I'm sure it helped by not saying it damaged a lot because I say it a lot today and I mean it. Um, by, by, but by not saying it can make even worse damage. It takes a long time to change those character defects into the positive before anybody trusts us 
even notices that we're trying to change. So we have to be able to make those changes in our life in step seven to get to this eight-step list. Because when we do this, we need to have some self-confidence. We need to be in tune with our higher power. And we need to have some trust in some, some relationships at this point. Because our patterns have changed. Because how many times before you got this program did you say, I'm sorry, and you repeated the same thing over and over again, and every time you said you were sorry? I had to take the word sorry out of my vocabulary and I got this program. Especially at work. I had to learn how to say things. I never said I was sorry at work. I always covered up and lied about stuff. Not my mistake. I don't know who did that. But at work, instead of saying, I'm sorry, I would say, uh, you're right, I need to change that. Because my sponsor said, take that word out of your vocabulary. You've used it way too much, and it meant nothing to you. Suppose that we are irritable, critical, impatient, and humorless. Should we lavish attention upon one member of the family and neglect the others? This is so true with families that have children in them uh, that are out there drinking and using. How many times do parents focus on the damaged child and forget the good kid? And the good kid is probably being damaged more than the one that's out there raising hell because they're going to raise hell no matter what you do. And letting go of them allows them to learn to be responsible for themselves and find help for themselves. But the good kid sits there and nobody notices them. And they feel like nothing, like a nobody, like they don't count. They feel exactly the way we do with the alcoholic. Be aware of that. Do not give so much attention to the alcoholic or addict active ones in your life that you neglect the ones that are okay because not every kid in a family is a bad kid and when we get to here we don't wallow in depression we don't get in self-pity we don't go oh my god I've done all this and I've done all that what we do is we try to develop an attitude in making this list say this is it. I'm going to be okay because I'm going to get this done. I'm going to take care of this. And I'm going to be the person that my God wants me to be. I'm going to clean up all the garbage. I'm going to make my side of the street clean and I am going to walk down this side of the street in the sunlight of the Spirit and feel no guilt no self-pity, no revenge. I'm going to be free because this is the first step of freedom. And on the ninth step is that the set is the final step of freedom in our life. So this is the first step of freedom of being bound by any restrictions in your life. Absolutely. It is the beginning of the end of isolation from our fellows and from God. The reason for that 
in this step is because we will no longer be afraid of what anybody thinks about us. Because we're getting ready to make those amends and we're going to be honest and open and talk to our sponsors about it before we do the ninth step. And you can absolutely not isolate if you're going to take this step because this means getting involved with others. Now, if that scares the hell out of you, you better go back to the seventh step because you need to pray more. You need to talk to your sponsor more. You need to talk to God more about the things that you need to be doing that you're not doing that are positive in the change in your life. Because at this point, this is a step that's going to take away the fears. And it's going to take away the self-pity and we're going to say, nobody will have any power over me anymore. Thank you very much.